Good evening. Wow, look at all you good people, right? Why don't we just give the Lord a big hand as we get gathered in here? Man, thank you so much for coming on a Tuesday evening uh, to an event like this. Uh, and we're, we're just excited about the topic. We're excited about uh, the opportunity uh, to, to facilitate for uh, David and Jill and those things. And um, as we get started tonight, I just want to give you a little, little bit of how we're going to work. Um, the, we're going to have a, two sessions in the middle. We'll have a, like a 15-minute break. There's going to be some coffee and things out there to fellowship with, and then we'll come back in, and, and that's how it's going to work for a little bit. Uh, the book table is going to be out there. Uh, David and Jill will talk a little bit about that as far as some of those things. The important thing about uh, that particular book table and this story is that um, Doug and Nancy, Nancy's uh, dad's story is also in the book. And so we have some connections in a lot of ways with this particular topic, not only as believers, but very personally in that particular uh, fashion. Many of you here obviously have, have been a part of Firm Foundation Ministries for a while. And a lot of you were here when my family uh, and I walked through the loss of our uh, grandson, almost three years old, and died in his sleep. And uh, that was such an outpouring and thing for uh, our church as a family and those things. And so maybe you've experienced this, you have a family member experience that we're going to talk about all of those particular things. But mine and Lisa's tie to David and Jill go a long way back, way before even any of this particular property was here. Uh, as Lisa and I were wrestling over moving to Michigan, God had spoken to us and I had said no. And that's over 20 years ago. Uh, and um, we were in Fort Wayne for our annual conference and David and Jill were there helping lead that conference. And um, we went to uh, Lima, Ohio for... Uh, uh, to spend the evening with Derek and Dana and to be at uh, Pastor Jim and Dawn's church <clears throat> there, kind of family. And um, that night at Dave, Derek and Dana's uh, kitchen table, um, I, I, was, I could never be more mad at friends uh, that I had had, Jim and Derek especially, uh, because um, they were part of God speaking to us about moving to Michigan from Florida. And Jim had spent years coming down to Florida and ministering to our church uh, that I was an elder at and uh, those things. And I was being incredibly disobedient. And uh, they were loving me through the process for sure. And I just knew that they had set this meeting up. And at Derek Wallace's kitchen table... David Oliver leaned back and closed his eyes and began to prophesy about me choking the engine of God and um, how God had prepared something to run full speed and I was throttling it back. And I had never been so mad at a friend in my life because I knew they had set this up. Um, and even though my experience with David and his prophetic ministry and all those things had been uh, something where we tried and seen it tested over and over again, uh, but that was a long ride from Kaleida, Ohio to the panhandle of Florida uh, back. But here we are all those years later, so I blame David. <laughs> Amen. And so uh, they've been in a, a part of this, even though living in the UK and, and uh, all those things, uh, separation over years and those. But our story's still tied. And so tonight... I'm excited to present this to you. I'm glad that you came out. We want you to hear their story. We want you to give them a great warm welcome. Miss Jill is going to come first. Let's welcome her and the Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. 
Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. It would be very lonely here without you in this big auditorium here. Um, it's a very different sort of evening. There's no praise and worship. There's no prayer at the moment um, planned, but uh, we want to share our journey with you. So I'm going to start by sharing Joel's journey before we talk about heaven. And um, I'm a nurse, so you're going to have to forgive what I'm about to say, okay? I've got my nurse's cap on now, okay? If you have any children, or if you are between the ages of 20 and 40, this is especially for you on a regular basis, you need to check your poo, okay? If you don't know what you're checking for, look it up on the internet, bowel cancer, okay? Symptoms of bowel cancer, it's seen in your poo. Check your poo, okay? I'm only going to mention it one other time, and it's not now. Um, thank you for, for coming. Um, I want to tell you about Joel. He was our second-born child of four, our first-born son. Joel died on the 20th of December, 2018, and he was 38 years old and three months during the previous September, he'd started to have abdominal pains and there were no family doctor diagnosis, just reassurance that we don't know what it is, but just take painkillers. And this continued, just taking more and more painkillers. Later, he was sent home where he'd gone to the emergency department. They just gave him, wait for it, more painkillers. And uh, no tests, nothing. So a little bit later, he was in so much pain and nausea that he went back to the emergency department where they'd sent him home. This time, we won't go into it, but there was a, some intervention by some godly people, and um, they took him seriously this time. They started doing blood tests, investigations. They kept him in, and they did multiple biopsies and discovered that his kidneys were failing, which was one of the things that were giving him the pain. And so they inserted stents into his failing kidneys and then they thought that they had a diagnosis of lymphoma so he went down that route for a little while and they and they sent him home um, he was readmitted then later in November and on the 28th of December David's mum died and that same day that David's mother passed away Joel called us to say that he had cancer definitely wasn't lymphoma but they didn't know where this cancer was, but it would likely be inoperable. He didn't want us to come back up to the north because he imagined it was gonna be a long journey. I mean, if you're diagnosed with something that's not operable, you think, well, probably chemo for a while. But um, so we stayed back down in the south and we were meanwhile arranging David's mother's funeral. Um, but Joel never got to know that. Um, a few days later, he called us very tearfully, and he said he had been told by the, the doctors now that he had between two weeks and six months to live, and would we as a family come up and see him? So we all went up. We're a medical family, everyone except Dave. Don't please ask him anything medical. He knows nothing, okay? No, nothing. Don't ask him. Um, but together with his wife, Joe, we nursed him round the clock. He didn't want to be on his own. He didn't want to be left. Um, he went to a state hospital. Then he was moved there to be under the care of an oncologist. And during that time, we had, you know, great highs. We were praying for healing, um, but we had unimaginable lows. 
Joel eventually was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer, which is why I'm gonna say it again, check your poo. <laughs> um, so after being told that he would have two months, two weeks onwards to live, he died 10 days later. Our family had had to watch Joel, our previously healthy, energetic, outward bound type guy, very physical, um, in now reduced to excruciating pain, um, stents in his kidneys, parts of his body all battered and bruised, and incredible disfiguring edema. Um, and he was very scarred. He had numerous lines in and out and no energy to do anything him for himself. But he was so polite and so caring. He was still telling people about Jesus, even though he was so sick. The evening before he died at Joel's request, we all sat with Joel, while the oncologist consultant and the medical um, team told us that the medical team had agreed to withdraw all treatment and going to let him die. Um, that was the, probably one of the lowest points. Um, from that initial shock of the doctor's pronouncement, 17 life-changing days, exhausting days later, Joel was safe in the arms of Jesus. Now, people say to me, am I angry with God? Which, to me, is a mystery. I don't understand the question. Um, because how could I be angry with God? Because he had blessed us to have Joel in our lives for 38 wonderful years full years of knowing him in our lives. And our lives were so much richer for having him. And we're looking forward to spending eternity with him. Um, I understand the phrase, sorry for your loss, but I haven't lost him. I know exactly where he is. So when he was born, he was placed up onto my abdomen by the midwife and I had him in my arms. And that last day, I placed him into the arms of Jesus. He's not lost. I know exactly where he is. Dave. Joel was my best friend, a co-laborer in work and in church. We would sail together, we would enjoy food and drink together, we would do the great outdoors together, we would talk to each other on the phone every single day, we would email each other multiple times every single day. On our drive here to Centerville this evening, he would have called and he'd said, hey dad, what are you preaching? And he would have prayed for me on the phone. I would have asked him, well, what are you doing in your youth church? Hi, Nancy. What are you doing in your youth church, and we would have prayed for him. And after Joel's death, there are some inevitable questions, aren't they? And the obvious question is why? It's a fair question, by the way. It's a legitimate question. It very rarely gets answered, but it is a legitimate question. But actually, a different question became deeply important to me. And that question was, what can I do now that I couldn't do before? What should I do now that I would never have thought of doing before? And as one small step in that response, I committed to write this book all about heaven on which this evening's material is based. And of course, forgive what may feel like a bit of a promotion at the beginning, but we would love it, of course, if everyone here tonight would feel like a window gets opened into heaven. 
during our time together. That's our prayer, that's our intent, and that's our hope. But I would also, frankly, love every family or person in this room to buy at least one copy of the book. And it's not because I think I've written a great thing, and it's not because Nancy's story's in here. It's because we'll be gone in two hours. You probably won't see us again. And the problem is with that, heaven will disappear rapidly from your thinking. Having a resource that you can dip into is a good investment. And of course, because a church family like yours has supported us, some of you I know, including Doug and Nancy, have supported us in prayer. Thank you for that. Some of you have already bought the book. Thank you for that. But could I also ask you a big favor tonight, and it's this. Would you, during the evening, if you find it helpful, think of two or three other folks that would really benefit from what you're getting and think about investing a bit of heaven into their lives? So a big thank you again for coming this evening. Most of us in this room have lost a family member or friend. Some have been through the pain of losing a spouse. Some have lost a a mum or dad. Some of us will have lost a grandparent or a brother or sister. And some, like Jill and me, will have lost a son or a daughter. But so few of us have been taught about these things with clarity and confidence. And so it is in the deep pain, the grief, and the confusion, there are all kinds of legitimate questions, aren't there? What does happen when we die then? Where exactly do we go as Christians? And what precisely might we do when we get there? And many Christians are unconvinced. Actually, they're fearful by what they know and think. So with God's help this evening, let's try and discover what the Bible has to say about these very real, very important, and very life-changing and understandable questions. Now, what does happen when we die? This question must be asked thousands of times every day. By the way, 105 people die every minute. By the time we're finished tonight, 12,000 people will have gone into eternity. One person out of one dies. Old, young, millionaire, penniless, home alone, or in the bosom of the family, one thing is sure, inevitable, and certain, and that is we will die. And without any question, every one of us in this room tonight will die unless Jesus returns before that event. When I go sailing, which is my hobby, I travel to new ports or new destinations, and I love the preparation. I can spend hours, sometimes days, preparing for a single sailing trip. And yet, given the 100% certainty of death, isn't it surprising, maybe even shocking, that we talk so little about it, we explore the journey so infrequently, we plan so little for it, the most important journey of all time, and we live as if it's never going to happen. Our society is on the run from death. And by the way, Christians are numbered amongst them. We're not even supposed to use that word, death. Passed on, passed away, sorry you've lost it. Now, as you probably know, at the moment of death, physical processes stop. Breathing stops. Heart stops. Circulation stops. Hair, bizarrely, might carry on growing for a very little while. But then the process of decay comes. And if a human is only a body, then by definition that has to be the end. 
But even the first law of thermodynamics doesn't agree. It says neither energy, soul and spirit, nor matter, body, can be destroyed. They can be transformed into other forms, but they cannot be annihilated. As Burris Jenkins puts it on the screen, no single atom in creation can go out of existence. It can only change its form. Now, the Bible puts it much clearer, and you don't have to be clever to understand it. Ecclesiastes says, dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Death is the moment of separation between body and spirit. Two things intimately entwined that we've never seen separated before, becoming separated. When Jesus famously turned to the dying thief, his statement lays a clear foundation for the beginning of our evening. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. The master was making it clear right from the beginning. The last breath here, the next breath, the next breath, somewhere else with someone else doing something else. Jill's already said, people said, sorry, you've lost Joel. He's not lost. We know where he is. He is in the safe arms of Jesus. And for the Christian, therefore, death is different. It must be different. It has to be different. It really is different. We haven't lost Joel. We have placed him in the safe arms of Jesus. Death, ladies and gentlemen, is not a brick wall. It is not a dark end. It is not an impenetrable block at the end of our life's tunnel. It is a doorway to the greatest adventure of all time. It's the journey home after a long time away. It is a doorway to a world that is better than the best we've ever had or could ever have. And yes, it is tough for us and Joel's wife and family, but for Joel, it is better by far, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, the Bible's a really helpful book. Don, you have David Campbell here as well, don't you? Uh, these two brothers are great with the Bible, and the, the Bible's really helpful. It's practical. It's down to earth. It gives us at least five metaphors. One of these will work for you. That's my point. The Bible talks uh, about a shepherd's tent, a weaver's loom, a collapsing tent or a departure. Paul referred to it as a departure. Now, Paul, as you know, was into tents and ocean sailing. Both things were part of his world, and therefore the vocabulary he chooses was informed by his world. And when Paul refers to it as a departure, as an ocean traveler, he is talking of death like the sailing of a ship. In a very familiar passage, you know this, some of you, he said, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. And that word depart means pull up anchor and set sail. And Bishop Brent, in a well-known poem, was, I imagine, referring to this when he wrote these words, What is dying? A ship sails and I stand watching till she fades on the horizon, and someone at my side says, she is gone. Gone where? 
gone from my sight. That is all. She is just as large as when I saw her. The diminished size and total loss of sight is in me, not in her. And just at the moment when someone at my side says, she is gone, there are others who are watching for her coming, and other voices take up a glad shout, there she comes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is dying. The Bible also uses the phrase, falling asleep referring quite clearly in each case to people who have died. Falling asleep helpfully describes the process of dying, and I think in the tender-hearted mercy of Jesus, it's one of the most beautiful metaphors because it's tender and helpful. Why? Because no one is afraid of falling asleep. But a problem has arisen in church circles where some have taught that when we die, we kind of stay in a an unconscious limbo. Some preachers have taught what is called soul sleep. In other words, when we die, we enter a kind of spiritual coma, asleep in a non-physical body until we wake up at the sound of the last trumpet. There are lots of problems with that view. Not least, in my experience, it is utterly distressing for those left behind. But more importantly, it robs the Christian of any expressed desire to leave this earth. In Luke 8, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, commentators will argue, is it a story, a parable, or a fact? Either way, the ingredients are crystal clear. Lazarus is in paradise, or Abraham's bosom, as it's also called, and the rich man is in conscious torment, his spirit in prison, Think about this with me. Neither of them are asleep. They can talk. They can recognize each other. They are feeling, seeing, and hearing. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there. They are clearly not asleep. They too are talking. They are recognizable. In fact, even the disciples recognize them without a name tag or iPhone face recognition. They are not asleep, is my point. Spirits do not sleep. At the end, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, when he's being stoned, cries out at the end, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, it also is clear in the story where Jesus heals the little girl of Jairus' daughter, In Luke 8, it says, her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Well, it can't return if it's asleep. It was her body that was asleep, and her body that stood up at the returning spirit. And in a number of ways, Paul makes it even clearer. He says, at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Away from the body, at home with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I desire to depart, weigh anchor and set sail and be with Christ, which is better by far. Those statements, self-evidently, ladies and gentlemen, can only make sense if the last breath here is followed by the next breath, somewhere else, with someone else doing something else. The next question I found in my research was a perplexing question. 
I looked at it in this way. I began to say to myself, what on earth is up with heaven? Let me tell you what I mean. At the very end, there were blessings over Joel's children, prayers. And then as father, my privilege of declaring the last scripture. And as the last words left my mouth, quite literally, as the last words left my mouth, his last breath left his. There was the last holding of rapidly cooling hands. Tears, of course, the last kisses for the one we had all loved. And as I laid my head against my son's beard, still slightly warm, troubling questions began to fill my mind. Where has Joel gone? How did he get there? What is he doing now? And how come as a preacher of four decades, I don't know the answer to my own questions? Why is there so little written about present heaven as I've come to call it? And why do so few Christians really want to talk about it? And when they do, you'll discover they don't have a lot of enthusiasm for being there. So all these questions and many more rolled over and over in my mind. And part of my research that I committed to do was hoping that somehow the Bible and God by His Spirit would open a window into heaven so that I could understand these things. And it is surprising, folks, how few Christians talk about heaven. That has to be strange, doesn't it? If I were a salesman or an evangelist, it has to be the number one thing. It's the biggest benefit we've got. And those of you who've had theological training, you ask yourself, how much did you learn? How much were you taught about present heaven in your Bible college or your online learning? Now, some of you today in this room will have a view of heaven already that is authentic, it's compelling, it's clear, and it's deeply attractive but you're in the minority. Many of the great theologians, for one reason or another, skipped the topic. So when I studied, there were lectures on the resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth, the rapture, the great tribulation, the millennium. If you don't know what half of those mean, thank God and don't try and find out. But I don't recall a single lecture on present heaven. I looked at some of the most well-known commentaries, 14 of them, 2,400 pages. Don, David Campbell, others of you who teach Bible will be accessing some, if not all of those. In 2,400 pages, less than 10 that even gave a nod to present heaven. And not one that really articulated or unpacked it. And when I looked for books on where Joel has gone, present heaven, I couldn't find one. There are bucket loads of books here in the States on the new heaven and the new earth. Randy Alcorn's is best in class. But there's nothing that I could find at the time of writing on present heaven. And this surely raises a question then. And one of the most obvious is, is there really not much in the Bible then on this topic? Why is it I can't recall a sermon in 10 years in my church family on present heaven? And why is it our thinking and our conversation is so apathetic, lacking in engagement and longing and hope. And I think the reasons come from various sources. 
But uncertainty and ambiguity are at the heart of why Christians don't read about present heaven, don't talk about present heaven, and we don't have many sermons on present heaven. Now, uncertainty and ambiguity comes from several sources, and the first in the charismatic church, which we are, is confusion around end-time doctrines. I guarantee in this room tonight, if we had the time and the will, <laughs> there will be difference in this room on the new heaven, the new earth, the millennium, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, or the rapture, and there will be differences. And in a master stroke of Satan, those unanswered doctrinal differences about the end time do what? They leave us feeling uncertain, unsure, and unsolid about present heaven. I've got two good friends. They're Bible teachers and Greek scholars. One's just gone to be with the Lord. His name is David Pawson, world-class Bible teacher, brilliant mind. Steve Thomas, some of you know him. Both of them are Greek scholars. Both of them are friends. Both of them have polar opposite views on the millennium. Now, watch what it did to me. Because I don't speak Greek and I don't have a great intellect and I'm not clever like them, I allowed it to neuter my own view on heaven. Now, the great news tonight is this. It doesn't matter a scrap on one level what your end-time doctrine looks like. None of those end-time views have to have any impact on what you can believe with absolute confidence happens when you die, where you go, what you're going to be doing, and who you're with. Someone please say amen there. Now, another reason for uncertainty and ambiguity is the fact that heaven has been spiritualized. Now, we can laugh at this, and I do, but greetings card companies, and I have to have a slightly racial dig and say the U.S. is even worse at this than the Brits, and blame Hallmark if you want. But we've been fed a line by ad agencies, greeting card companies, and artists of white-clothed angelic beings strumming clouds sitting on a harp, and if you're really lucky, with a pot of nice-tasting yogurt. <laughs> now, the problem with that is, I find that utterly distasteful, and it's also totally religious. It's utterly disappointing. It's not authentic, and it's not remotely attractive. For this reason, then, I suspect, science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wrote these words. I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven, which would be even worse. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Why would an intelligent man like Asimov write that? I tell you why. Because the answer leads to our third of several reasons for ambiguity and uncertainty. One of the most popular, actually one of the most sinister and damaging beliefs sown into the church is that one of the main activities in heaven is an eternity spent singing. And I know from speaking to thousands, joking apart, this is a real fear. And I appreciate in this room, there will be one or two that face the prospect of everlasting worship songs with unalloyed joy. But take it from me, you're in the minority. And yes, of course, 
there are songs. There are two in Revelation. And there is mass, there is scale, there is choral sound and color and vibration that you could not imagine. And yes, it is wonderful, but ladies and gentlemen, it is a tiny part, nothing to do with the whole. And even in Scripture, sung worship, which is honored and important and powerful, is limited. For instance, how many worship songs did Jesus sing with his disciples? How many worship songs do you find in the only passage in the Bible which gives us a blueprint for a church gathering on a Sunday? And if you're interested, the correct answer is one or two. In his well-researched book, David Murrow has a chapter entitled, I'm Afraid of Heaven. He writes this, Popular notions of heaven strike fear into men's hearts. What man wants to spend eternity wearing a white robe, floating on a cloud, plucking a harp? Men fear heaven because it sounds so dull, no challenge, no uncertainty, no fun. In heaven there's nothing to do except an eternity singing in the choir. Thanks, Don. More seriously, let me ask you this. With all that you have read and all that you know in your heart about the Jesus you follow, can you honestly believe that he would want, expect, and even purpose that our life in heaven would be based primarily around singing songs? This is the Jesus who loved barbecues, who worked with his hands, who sailed boats, who went fishing, who chose to go out in storms, who loved climbing hills, who appreciated the wonder of creation so much that the devil chose the created world as his final temptation. The heaven many describe is not the heaven I can imagine Jesus describing then or now. So then, heaven, do you really want to go? When I was 21 years old, my mother and father nursed my, uh, my dad through cancer. And I'll never forget the final moments. They're etched into my mind. 21-year-old, never seen death. We'd fasted and prayed for my dad's healing. We'd got the best medical treatment we could find. We'd shed many tears of grief together at his wasting body and the physical pain and discomfort, but at the moment of his death, I found myself kneeling at the foot of his bed, singing a worship song. This is not me choosing. This is not me trying to be spiritual. This is something God was orchestrating. I'm on my knees at the foot of my dad's bed, and I'm singing some words from the book of Psalms which say, your loving kindness is better than life. The human desire is to prevent death at any cost. Your medical system of mine is designed to make us want to hold on to life whatever it costs. To prevent death and to hold on to life here. The culture around us wants to pressure us into thinking that this planet is our only real home and to stay alive in this real home, so-called, holding on as long as we can. But at that moment, I saw that to be with Christ is far better than life, 
And God's loving kindness, his presence, his manifest love is far better than life. And something changed in me at a very deep level that day. And here's a question which will help you determine what you really believe. Are you willing to stay but longing to go? Or are you willing to go but actually longing to stay? The answer to that question is really important. Why? Because it reveals to every one of us what's deep in our heart in terms of how we really view heaven. It reveals to each of us what's most important right now, this life or the next. And that reality affects how we live life now, how we handle living for God now with full abandon. And it reveals what we deep down really believe about heaven. A man called G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, The modern philosopher had told me again and again I was in the right place. And I felt depressed when I agreed. When I heard I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in the spring. I knew now why I could feel homesick at home. One of the songs from the USA band, second chapter of Acts, has never left me. It's in me. My heart hums it. Going home, I'm always going home inside. There's an ache in my heart that I can't hide. I've always been going home inside. I am longing for my real home. Scripture tells us this world is not our home. We are aliens, exiles, looking forward to our true home. We are homesick for our real home. And a scripture I only saw a few months back, you'd have thought at my age, I'd have seen it decades ago. Last words to the disciples, Jesus turned to them and he said, I'm going away, and if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going. Why? He wanted to go home. Paul said, away from the body, at home with the Lord. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. This is a home designed by Jesus, a place he has purposed, built for you. I can't wait for that next home. Budding remodelers in the room, eat your heart out. I believe in eternal life. I believe that heaven is better by far. And I believe that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To die is the doorway to an even better life and I can't wait. Yes, I love the life I've got here. I love the great outdoors. I love to be sailing. I love my wife, Jill, and my kids. But I know the next life is exponentially better, and I can't wait. And all that, by the way, makes handling suffering, loneliness, pain, and grief so much easier in the here and now. Now in England, we have a great game called rugby. It's a little bit similar to American football. It's much better, by the way. Uh, we don't wear any protective clothing. It's much faster, and it's a bit more brutal. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. You'd enjoy it. And uh, that's my son Joshua at the front. There's me. That's grandson Jacob in the middle. There's Joel with the beard and a good friend Dan with a hat on. 
And we're at Twickenham Stadium. Now, this is an event a bit like your Super Bowl, so the biggest stadium in the country, and we're playing France, our arch enemies, or Ireland, our arch enemies, or Wales, our arch enemies, or New Zealand, our double arch enemies, and uh, we are geared up. Uh, by the way, Joel's son, uh, Jacob, back in the middle of that picture, right there with his thumbs up, he's 18 in a few days' time, and just been selected for the second time to play for the England under-18 rugby squad. So his dad would have been very, very proud of him. But the stadium has an anthem. I don't know if the Super Bowl has an anthem, does it? Probably one for each team, but this is an anthem just for the Brits. And my son has, or had, it's probably changed now he's with the Lord, but he had an ear for music like a pig's trotter. I mean, he could not keep a tune for love nor money, but that never stopped him. And he would start the stadium anthem. And if we were plucky and a bit courageous and stuck at it with him, within about 15 seconds, 70,000 people around this stadium would be singing the anthem. And here is the anthem. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Now, it owes its origin to the African-American spiritual genre, which produced another well-known song that Jim Reeves in this country immortalized, and that song is, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, and if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? Now, I understand the origin of those songs is multifaceted, but one of its helpful ingredients was it was helping those oppressed by slavery to handle suffering and pain by reminding themselves that they were just passing through and that heaven was their real home. And in his book, Randy Alcorn puts it the best I've ever heard or ever read, and he says these words, I've never been to heaven, but I miss it. Eden is in my blood the best things of life are souvenirs from Eden. They are appetizers. There's just enough of them to keep us going, but never enough to make us satisfied with the world as it is, or ourselves as we are. We live between Eden and heaven, pulled toward what we once were and what we will yet be. Life on earth matters not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end. Once we get to see it, ladies and gentlemen, we will be filled with longing to go there. Heaven is my magnetic pull. It's where I long to be, and my heart and my mind and my body and my spirit will not be at rest until I'm there. I am homesick for my real home. Now, what does confuse some folks is there are two places called heaven, and it's a puzzle for some, and actually, it's quite easy to get. And when you get it, it's rather wonderful. Ultimately, after the return of Jesus, our final destination will be in resurrected bodies, and we will inhabit a new heaven and a new earth and a wonderful new Jerusalem. Most of us know that. But here's the dilemma. Instinctively, 
we understand that we don't have a direct flight there when we die. Actually, it's wonderfully simple. It's straightforward. Like many journeys, there's a planned stopover. Final destination, planned stopover. Jill and I have done loads of long-haul journeys. We've come to the point where we'll often plan in a stopover. Stopovers can be wonderful. You can visit some amazing places. We've had some fantastic stopovers. Sometimes they've been nearly as good, occasionally even better than the final destination. And of course, we never forget there's a final destination. But often there's as much preparation and anticipation for the stopover as for the final destination not least because it's first up. And present heaven is a wonderful stopover. And it's called paradise. At the cross, we already read the scripture, Jesus turned to the dying thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gave that dying thief a promise, a location, and by inference, a definition. 2,000 plus years later, I have no doubt the dying thief is still strutting his stuff in paradise. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 describing what was likely an out-of-body experience, a near-death experience if you want, uses the same Greek word for paradise to describe his visit to present heaven. In Revelation, the Apostle John uses the same word as he talks about the paradise of God when he is clearly in present heaven. So paradise or at home with the Lord are both phrases that Jesus, John, and Paul use to describe present heaven for the Christian. Paradise comes from a Persian word for a beautiful walled garden, but don't think backyard in terms of size, scale, or beauty. Think magnificent scale, construction, size, and beauty and color and design, a place of function, a place of peace, a place of joy. And this is why we typically use the word paradise to describe the Garden of Eden. And it's interesting, people who report near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences often describe the place they glimpse as being like a beautiful garden. So for the Christian, as soon as the spirit is released from the body by death, It has immediate, direct access to the presence of Jesus in a beautiful garden-like place, which Paul says is better by far. Now, here's the problem. Our senses are conditioned to think of earth as real and heaven as somehow less real, less physical. And yet, after visiting paradise, most commentators think he probably had an out-of-body experience after he was stoned and probably dead on one of his first preaching trips. You can read the story. Paul called what he saw surpassing greatness. Now, this is not a Bible teacher's theory. This is a sensory explosion, better than anything we've ever seen or could ever imagine, if it's better by far, if it is a place of surpassing greatness, then expect to be blown away, spoilt for life. Paul was so spoilt for life, in order to keep his feet on planet Earth, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, to keep him earthbound. 
His words give you a clue where his heart really was. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Please don't tell yourself that the garden called paradise is no better than your garden. Please don't ever believe, even for a second, that the most spectacular views you have observed, climbing mountains, sailing on an ocean, standing on a beach, into valleys or forests, skies, views of the heaven. Please don't suggest to yourself for a moment that these are the reality. No, these wonderful experiences are not the reality. They are the appetizers, the shadow, the pale reflection of the real thing. Expect your senses to reel and reel again. Now, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences have become increasingly familiar. Ten years ago, I would never have included them in any sermon I would have preached. But they've become a well-researched Christian apologetic. Now, they're not Scripture, so you don't trust them in the way you would trust Scripture. In the book, by the way, including... Nancy's story, uh, we have two chapters. One is called Paradise, the Official Tour Guide. And that's straight from the words of Ezekiel, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, and John. Absolutely trustworthy, what the Bible actually says. Then we have a chapter called Paradise, the TripAdvisor Reviews. Now, the difference between the Official Tour Guide and the TripAdvisor Reviews is pretty self-evident. One is totally trustworthy, the other is indicative, but not definitive. But if they all give it 4.5 out of 5, you can pretty well guarantee it's a safe holiday destination. Dr. Raymond Moody, a a U.S. psychiatrist, was the first individual to start research. He began with 150 research reports. The resultant book sold over 13 million copies. By the way, I'm not suggesting that (coughs) validates the findings. I'm just saying that's how interested people really are. Latest research, by the way, in the U.S., 25% of U.S. people say they've had an NDE. 25%. That's huge. Now, there's plenty of documented scientific research, which is what I'm talking about here, and there are over 3,500 cases at least that are journaled in the Lancet American Journal of Psychiatry, Critical Care, Quarterly, British Journal of Psychiatry. So they have been researched and they have been journaled. Now, in the book, I wanted to be really careful, and this is what I did. I wanted to choose stories that weren't perhaps the most exciting or dramatic, but they came from people I actually knew. So people I could trust, the veracity of what they said, people whose words I would trust, and people who had no axe to grind or promotion to try and achieve. And... Here's one of them from a couple in an Oxford church, part of our Salt Light Church family. Mary and Barry Wood are their names. Mary writes this. She said, I had a really bad asthma attack, and it was clear during the attack that I wasn't responding to my usual meds, so my friend called the family doctor. By the time the doctor came, it was early afternoon. I was struggling to breathe. I couldn't walk, and the normal inhalers and steroids were not touching the symptoms. The doctor examined me and said, I think we need to give you a quick dose of something and started to give me an injection of aminophylline. The next thing I knew, says Mary, 
I was in a bright, wonderful place. Everything brighter than bright. I felt this extraordinarily complete peace and at-home feeling. I had an awareness of the presence of Jesus and of other people. Lots of people around wandering in a normal way. No sense of being abnormal. Lots of different ages and sizes. They were just there. The main thing that stood out, says Mary, was the place was brighter than bright. There was an amazing clarity. Everything I looked at was in focus. Nothing was blurry. It was fascinating to me, she said, because it was long and short distance at the same time. There was an overarching awe and an emotion I can best express as this. This is the place I was made for. This is the place I am meant to be. I came to, she says, with the doctor performing CPR. I'd apparently reacted badly to the injection. It stopped my heart and I died for around 10 minutes. I felt so very disappointed to be back. She said, I realized I hadn't had the sense of missing anyone. In fact, I knew I was in a better place. And like so many other NDE stories, Mary writes, I can't wait to go back. USA airline pilot, Captain Dale Black, was killed in a plane crash. His story's unpacked with permission in the book. But here's two paragraphs that'll take us to our break. He writes this. Uh, by the way, he was resuscitated, just in case you think I'm getting really weird. <laughs> Thank you. The lights I saw, he said, were the purest I had ever seen. The music was the most glorious I had ever heard. I was overwhelmed by the beauty. It was breathtaking, and a strong sense of belonging filled my heart. I never wanted to leave and wait for it. I knew I was made for this place, and this place was made for me. The light was palpable. It had substance and weight and thickness like nothing I had seen before. Somehow I knew that light and love were connected and interrelated. Remarkably, the light didn't shine on things, but through them, through the grass, through the trees, through the wall, and through the people who were gathered there, huge gatherings of angels and countless millions of people. Below me, he says, lay the purest, most perfect grass. Precisely the same length, not a blade bent or even out of place. The most vibrant green I had ever seen. And if a color could be said to be alive, the green I saw was alive each Blade emitting light and life. The iridescent grass stretched endlessly over gently rolling hills on which were sprinkled the most colorful wild flowers, lifting their soft, petaled beauty skyward, almost as if they were a chorus of flowers caught up in their own way of praising God. Every NDE I've read describes something that is better by far and something that feels like I was made for this place and this place was made for me. Now, in a moment, we're going to take a 15-minute break. In the slightly shorter second half, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches 
about present heaven. We're going to look at six things, four of which I think will be quite a shock to you. Toilets, are we having coffee? Toilets and coffee, coffee followed by toilets. Out there through the lobby, the books will be there uh, as well. Credit card, by the way, cash or check to KFOC. The team will help you. We'll see you back in 15 minutes. And if you could think of somebody that might just benefit from an investment of heaven, do think about it. See you back in 15 minutes.
Now, this evening is an evening not only where we come and be blessed, uh, we get to hear uh, David and Jill's story, and they get to express, uh, give some revelation and some knowledge. They've laid a great foundation about what they want to do now the rest of the evening. Uh, but one thing that I would love to do tonight is to be able to sow some seed into their ministry. Um, and, and that way um, we can be givers and we can expound the message of heaven uh, on the earth, whereas we might not be able to in other ways. Now, here at Firm Foundation Ministries, we rarely ta- talk about taking up an offering. Um, you know, uh, on Sunday mornings, you just come in and give, and we definitely uh, don't talk about it a lot, do we? Uh, and, and God gives, and He's faithful, and that's the way it is. But tonight, I do want to talk about it. I want to talk about being intentional with the subject of heaven. And uh, we would love tonight, if you're in the place to be able to give, uh, into their ministry, not only by buying a book, but giving into them directly. Uh, we want to give you space to do that, okay? And so uh, we're gonna, I'm going to have some guys come, and we're going to take a minute, and uh, we're just going to pray, and uh, they're going to pass this thing. No one's compelled, but if you want to give, please give. Uh, if you're giving cash, that's fine. Uh, if you are writing a check for this particular offering... Uh, you can write it to Firm Foundation Ministries, and uh, Holly will make a check out tonight for David and Elaine to that, okay? We'll make sure that uh, David, David and Elaine, the Campbells, David and Jill. That, uh, Nancy just said it, Miss Jill, that, you know, all Davids must be, you know, super anointed godly people. So, anyway... Um, So let's just pray for a minute. Does that make sense? All right. So, Father, tonight we thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have not only to receive but to give. God, we are sowing into your kingdom. And, Lord, we agree tonight with the Olivers that there is not enough expression of this particular topic in the world that we live. And so... It's no wonder that hope dwindles. Tonight, God, we want to be sowers of hope. And so as we give into their ministry, we ask that you bless them. God, you multiply our gift to them in ways that help them expound this message all across the earth. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. These guys are going to pass this and uh, just pass it to your neighbor and pass it around and those things. So, uh, again, as you're getting settled and this is coming uh, through, I I want you to understand some key things that happened here uh, tonight. Uh, You may see Jim and Dawn Swihart back there at the book table. I don't see them. They were sitting in the back. Uh, But I I want you to understand that when my wife and I first got saved and uh, we got born again and God placed us into Calvary Temple Worship Center, uh, Jim Swihart had an apostolic, huh? In Florida, Jim Swihart had an apostolic calling and he had been traveling down uh, to minister to that church. And Lisa and I first met Jim in Florida as he had come down in an apostolic way to minister to that church. And right away, uh, we touched base. Over the years, uh, I began to move into ministry and my calling in life. And because of my preaching style, um, everyone said, you're an evangelist, you're an evangelist, you're an evangelist, you're an evangelist, right? And so what did Don and Lisa begin to do? We began to evangelize, which was great. We bought a tent. We traveled around in a gospel tent. I have a picture of it. We did tent revivals. People got saved. People got healed. People got delivered. I mean, one tent revival, we put, we put a tent up, and we had church every night for three months. And people got saved over and over and over again. But there was something in mine and my wife's life that we still felt was missing. And I'm telling you this story because I'm giving them time to pass the hat. How about that? 
Jim traveled down uh, from Ohio to Florida to spend the week with us at the church, and I took the week off from work. And I got to spend every day with Jim. And Jim sowed into my life, and we sought the Lord together. And at the end of that week, Jim Swihart looked at me, and he says, You're not an evangelist at all. You're a pastor. And I had never been so relieved in all my life. That doesn't mean I got rid of my tent. Hello, somebody. And um, it just meant a man of God had come and spent some time with me. And it put me on a direction that was incredible uh, in my life as far as discipleship, as far as training, as far as focus and understanding. I will never forget that week that I got to spend with Jim. Uh, and uh, I will never forget Pastor Rick then taking me and saying, okay, we're, we're affirming and confirming the call on your life, and now we're going to begin uh, to disciple you into that calling. That's why my heart for discipleship is so powerful and pushed and, and those things. And so if you get to meet Jim tonight, uh, you'll see him. He, him and Don were sitting back there by the, by the table. He is a, a, a founding father of the faith in my life. And uh, it's just incredible to be a part of that. So I tell these stories and I talk about these men of God all the time. And you don't get to meet them a lot. But uh, two of them are in the house tonight that you get to meet. So let's give Jim and David a hand. Amen for that. <laughs> Mr. Oliver, come back and bless us. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful thing, you know, when what the Bible calls Ephesians 4 ministries, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, work together. It's a wonderful thing. So Jim and Dawn sit at the back. They've spent weeks building a platform for us to share something prophetically. Self-sacrificially, not up front. It's a wonderful thing when... Ephesians 4 ministries do their thing together. Right. An extra you only get to hear in Centerville. This is Nancy's uh, story. Doug wrote on behalf of Nancy these words. My father-in-law Ron had a near-death experience after cancer surgery in 98. In between heartbeats, he was in heaven. He saw Jesus in front of him with his arm outstretched, pointing at him and said, we don't need you up here yet. Then he was back in his body in the hospital room where my wife Nancy was visiting. His breathing stabilized, all his vitals stabilized. He asked for me in the waiting room. So together with the rest of the family, I came in expecting to hear his dying breath. However, as I got up close, I noticed his eyes were unusually large. He took my hand and said something that was muffled under the oxygen mask. After a few times, Nancy said, you saw the Lord. I repeated it, and he nodded, saying yes, with his eyes still large. I said, was it peaceful? He said, a big yes. And then he said, what do I do now? 129 is the page, if you want to find out. Great story. Present heaven then. Paradise is more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. I love the natural world, don't you? 
I'm drawn to it. I'm fascinated by it. I can't get enough of it. My wife, Jill, and I love to snorkel, and we went to the Red Sea. We have some uh, missionaries there that we can't talk about. They're missionaries to the local community there, but they are keen divers and snorkelers. They took us out snorkeling, and just before we went, they said, we have to warn you. Okay? I'm thinking big fish or stingers or something. They said, within 10 feet of the shoreline, there is an almost infinite drop, and it will take your breath away. Well, if you're snorkeling, that's not a good idea, just by the by. And those moments were breath taking, etched into your minds forever. You watch nature documentaries. I don't know if you ever get to see BBC documentaries here. It's one thing the Brits are good at, nature documentaries. And we get in awe as we look at the natural world, the frozen world, the oceans. Jill and I were on a sailing trip this year, and we've seen a few sunsets. This one was the most spectacular we have ever seen. It was 360 degrees. Don't Ask me how. All around us was sunset. Constantly shifting, changing, color, hue. And it left us stunned. It left us in awe. And it left us thinking of paradise. Why? Because we know these are just a tiny taste on the tip of our beauty appreciation taste buds. Heaven has to be more. It has to be better. Please don't tell me that heaven has none of this. Please don't suggest that what heaven has will somehow be boring, somehow set up like an eternal Sunday gathering. Please don't suggest to me that heaven will somehow be less breathtaking. This, ladies and gentlemen, is God's place. This is God's address. This is God's home. I has not seen nor ear heard half, half, of what God has prepared for those who love him. When you want to reflect on this sometime, think about the best views you've ever seen in your life, those moments that are etched into your mental photograph album. Reflect on those things, the best of the blue planet, above and below water, the best natural world experiences, the best natural parks you've ever visited. They are nothing, nothing, hear it, believe it, compared to paradise. There will be music that will send chills up your spine for days on end. There will be world-class construction at a new level that makes current world-class buildings like Notre Dame or Westminster Abbey look like sandcastles. And it starts with his welcome, his warm embrace, his welcome home embrace. And as we saw in our first half, it really is home. In paradise, Jesus, Paul, and John all make it clear we have a new body or form. It is not our resurrection body, and yet it's clearly amazing. Paul the Apostle was gobsmacked by it. He couldn't work it out. Am I in it or out of it? But it was enough like a body for him to even have to ask the question. It was part of his stopover, surpassing greatness, and what we can be sure of is it was better by far. Both Scripture and NDEs describe with amazing similarity a body that can feel, that can hear, that can see. They feel like new bodies and yet have substantial 
positive differences. NDEs describe bodies that are full of light that can move almost like Jesus' resurrection bodies and with senses that appear supercharged. This paradise body, ladies and gentlemen, is made of the stuff of eternal life. And it wants to sing, yes, it wants to worship, but it also wants to serve and work and function. Earth is not the best there is. Yes, it's wonderful, but it is less than, second string, not as good as all that is to come. Death is not the end of all that is precious or wonderful or awesome. It's the doorway to the very best there is. Death is the doorway to the greatest adventure. Expect your God-given senses to reel and reel again as you travel to the next life. And you get to see for the first time in your life traces of Eden magnified as present reality, perfect nature, perfect work, service, function, perfect art, perfect construction, and perfected relationships. Of course... It doesn't feel much like that to those of us who are left behind and who have to handle grief. So on the, um, so on the 20th of December, it was the first anniversary of Joel's death. And as a family, we'd all been kind of dreading this day. You know, it's, it was an unchosen unforgiving reminder day. But I woke up and the Holy Spirit just prompted me to think about Mary when the angels said to her, why are you looking for the living where the dead are? And I thought, well, if Joel is in heaven, we need to be viewing this as Joel's heaven day, not the anniversary of his death. So we try to think about it as his heaven day. The first Christmas, of course, was dire, as you could imagine, four days after. But the second Christmas, we were at home virtually alone. And the internet is an amazing thing, you know, when it's used properly. And my daughter texted me on Christmas Day, and she said, Mum, you need to be praying. She said, there's a lady in America, her name's Brittany, and she had three children and she had gone to her parents for Christmas Day and she had put her child down in, I think you call it a, plaque, a pack and play, and for her child to sleep. And it went past the time when he should have woken up and she went in and he wasn't breathing. Anyhow, they got to the emergency room and they had put him on a ventilator. So it was at that point my daughter said, Mum, you have to pray for this lady. And I want to say to you, in the midst of grief, Look for somebody who's worse off than you. Pray for them. That made all the difference to me that day. I was praying for her. Now, the story didn't end happily, um, but it was good to think about somebody other than us, what we were thinking that day. Think about other people. As a family, we've had years of walking with this grief in the valley of deepest darkness with its tears. And if you're like us and you've had some shocking stuff happen, you get flashbacks. So we have flashbacks and sleepless nights. But Joel, our son, hasn't had a year like that. You know, he hasn't had years of that. He's had amazing adventures. And I can't wait to hear what he's up to. So in the middle of our pain, we think of him. 
and what he's doing. Joel David Oliver really is home free. I mean, we play a game where you're safe if you're on an island sort of thing. Nobody else can get you there. Our other children, we're holding our breath for. Joel David is home safe. We know where he is. So we want to focus on heaven's gain rather than our mourning. Six things about heaven. Four surprises. Heaven's a big deal in scripture. The word heaven appears 492 times. The word heavens, 203 times. And maybe it's a surprise that heaven is never really thought of as the place where we go where we die. Why? Because heaven is first and foremost God's address. The Israelite is to pray, look down from your holy habitation from heaven. God is the God of heaven. He is the possessor of heaven. He is Lord of heaven. He is heavenly Father or our Father in heaven. He is also King of heaven. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. Heaven is first and foremost God's address. Heaven is also the command center, the hub. One of the things, the big questions that I've been asked this countless times, and it's in some minds already this evening, what do we do in heaven? And of course, the ambiguity that we talked about in the first half, the fears of an endless church service, fuel this question. But there is a daily prayer that gives us an incredible clue. This prayer is amazing. It's been prayed today possibly 50 or 60 million times around our planet. And most people don't have a clue what's in it. It's the so-called Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done in heaven as it's done on earth, right? No. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is remarkable stuff. Lord, let the penny drop. Let the light come on. We're reminding ourselves that our Father is from heaven, present heaven, paradise. That's his address. We are also reminding ourselves daily, if we pray this prayer, that his will is being done where? In heaven. Think that through. That means, ladies and gentlemen, in heaven there is activity, there is action, there is function. We're reminding ourselves daily that as the will of God is being done in heaven, we should long for, ask for, that same planned, purposeful, fruitful function, activity to be expressed through our lives on earth. Here's the point, folks. Earth is not the reality with heaven somehow a second best. Heaven is all that we were ever designed to be and enjoy. It is heaven that is the reality and earth that is the shadow. It is heaven that is better by far. 
So heaven is not primarily about where I go when I die. Of course, that is where I go when I die. But first and foremost, it's not about me. First and foremost, it's God's home, God's address. How can it not be better by far? The scale of it, the beauty of it, the order of it, the multiplicity of beings in it, the power of God and the presence of God that emanate from it remind us over and over that heaven is the substance, earth is the shadow or the misty reflection. Heaven really is his throne, earth really is his footstool, connected, yes, but different in size, in importance, in function, and by the way, in permanence. Now listen up. Heaven is not a resting place after I've done God's work on earth. Sorry to disappoint some of you, ladies and gentlemen, but heaven is not a fly and flop holiday destination where I sit by the pool and play Bethel or hill songs. Heaven is the hub, the command center, the operational base from which all God's kingdom activity both on earth and in heaven is being directed, resourced, planned, and activated. Whatever we do on earth can only be a reflection of what the king of heaven is purposing, directing, planning, requiring, resourcing. And first, front and center in heaven is the throne. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, and the Apostle John all visited present heaven, and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and John all write about the throne. Stephen, in his last few seconds on earth, and just before his first seconds in paradise, quotes from the Old Testament with these closing words, heaven is my throne, he quotes, and the earth is my footstool. In other words, folks, in paradise, present heaven, everywhere we look, and in each description by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and John, that throne is first front and center. All heaven, ladies and gentlemen, revolves around this throne. And the throne of God and of the Lamb, please hear it, is not a Bible teacher's picture or metaphor to focus our worship songs. It is the center point of increase the center point of function, the center point of future growth and activity. Read it and read it again and you will see that all the angelic and heavenly creatures recorded in places like Daniel, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah and John have this everlasting throne as their focal point and the reality is it is the command center with a thousand thousand serving him. The king of heaven sits on this throne and wherever that appears in Scripture, there is purposeful, meaningful, significant, powerful, eternally life-changing activity. This, ladies and gentlemen, is not a throne in front of the choir stalls or the worship band. This is a throne that issues commands and angels on horseback with swords respond. This is a throne that has books and records and libraries and campaign plans and legions of angels that together with the people of God respond purposefully, practically, functionally to the commands of the king. This throne is the center point 
of all increase. A few weeks ago in this building, I would guess that you read a scripture. It was read at a similar time all over the world. And the implications are life-changingly wonderful. And the scripture goes like this. Of the increase of his government and peace, wait for it, there will be no end. There is no end to increase. His place of rule is eternal and heavenly, but more powerfully, please hear it. Let your heart respond to it. Let your spirit sing with it. It's not just that his place of government is eternal and heavenly, but more powerfully, it is eternally increasing. Heaven is a place of increase. Let it sink in. Let the wonder and the implications of that do their stuff in your wonderful minds. We're talking about a kingdom in heaven that is unstoppably increasing, growing, expanding. Think about this, shout it out with a loud hallelujah if you want, but that needs plan, that needs resource, that needs people, and that needs you and me. And one of the answers to the why question lies right there. That increase is not theoretical, it is the positive, intentional, undercurrent, undergirding everything in heaven. From the very first pages of Scripture in his very first Eden, Garden, Paradise, God is seen by nature, by name, by evidence, by words in the text as designer, creator, and ruler. God is by nature a God of increase in the first three chapters of Genesis' Eden alone. God is recorded as one who makes, forms, plants, builds. The good news is that doesn't stop at death for us. There are at least six rewards recorded in Scripture for us in heaven. And guess what? None of them have to do with vouchers for the massage parlor by the pool with Bethel in the background. They all have to do with work, service, function, and responsibility. Which brings me to this point then. Heaven is a place of work, service, and function. Our work for God has always been heaven's intent. It was Eden's intent. You know, you've been taught well here that work was never the result of the fall. Work was there before the fall. It was part of God's personality, integral to his faultless design. Work is beautiful. It is good. It is one of God's outstanding diamonds in the crown of Eden's creation. Work was to be the place where Adam had his most fulfilling, richest conversations and fellowship with his maker. And I'm aware, folks, in this room, there will be many, perhaps the majority, that have jobs that don't live up to that. You have jobs that are tough, that are unfulfilling, that don't satisfy you deeply, that don't have somebody who cares like Jim did for Don to make sure that the job he did was actually matched with the spiritual gifts that God had placed in him. But guess what in heaven that changes? 
all those longings you find repressed, suppressed, and oppressed in your workplace, gone in a fleeting moment, and here you are now in front of your maker who knows precisely how you are wired, and it gets you plugged in to increase. There's increase in our work yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but there's even more. God made us in his image so we can fulfill his purpose in ourselves by working in this world, but also in the next. On earth, as it is in heaven. And my suggestion here is simple. Rest is not the goal of heaven. There is rest in heaven, as there was in Eden. But it was always in the context of work and service and function. It's a rhythm. It's God's rhythm. Victor Hugo, some of you will have seen some of his plays, read his stories, his poems, or heard his songs. He clearly anticipated something similar. Let me read you his words, far more beautiful than anything I could even conceive. He says this, I feel within me that future life. I'm like a forest that has been raised. The new shoots are stronger and brighter. I shall most certainly rise towards the heavens. The nearer my approach to the end, the plainer is the sound of immortal symphonies of worlds which invite me. For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. History, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, and song. All of these I have tried. But I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my day's work is done. But I cannot say my life is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley, he says. It is a thoroughfare. It closes on the twilight, but opens on the dawn. The New Testament tells us we will rule with him. We will rule and judge angels. We will rule cities. We will have authority over nations. Does that sound like a fly and flop vacation? You can't do those things, ladies and gentlemen, without work, service, function, responsibility. The word serve and servant appear in Revelation 16 times, enough to hear imply there is work to be done, there is service to be done. We will probably, many of us, continue similar pursuits to what those of us who are lucky to have the spiritual gifts in us apply to the jobs we do. There'll be artists doing art as never before. Scientists may be invited by God to continue exploring the increase of infinite universes. Musicians will find their place in multiple ensembles. If the kingdom as we've got us is eternally expanding, increasing, progressing, then there will always be learning. Ephesians tells us that in the coming ages, he will reveal the incomparable riches of his grace. The entire passage implies ongoing, age-to-age, -age progressive revelation. We will grow in knowledge and experience. Children will grow and develop in a perfect learning environment. And heaven is a place of reward. Every one of us in this room loves reward. 
We love to know what we've done is appreciated. It's made a difference. When we or our kids engage in sport, we love to get a medal, a rosette, or a certificate. It's someone else's acknowledgement of effort, pain, sacrifice, and achievement, and contribution. I've been a business consultant for 40 years. I can tell you, one thing I've never seen is someone who didn't like a bonus or a commission. I never met that person. You tell someone they got a bonus or a commission, and more importantly, you tell them why. You watch their face smile, and yes, it's partly about the money, but it's more about the fact that the money is linked to reward for hard work, for over the top, for perseverance, for outcome, and for achievement. What we do on earth matters, ladies and gentlemen. My service, my attitude, my work matters. My relationships matter. Why? Because death is not the end of all that is good in this world. People tell you you can't take anything with you when you die. Sorry, they're wrong. You take your attitude, you take your past service, you take your work, you take your relationships with you when you die. What we do and what we have done follows us into heaven. It is real, and it has real and beneficial implications. Now, there are six rewards at least. I'm just going to tiny whet your appetite with two. That's it. But reward for financial choices. I travel a fair bit, and I know folks, you Americans, are by and large are most generous people. I've seen it over four decades. Talking to a rich young entrepreneur, Jesus challenged him to sell all he had and distribute it to the poor, and he promised him what? Treasure in heaven. The disciples were shocked that Jesus went on to say how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, almost as impossible as a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. And Peter says, look, we've left our homes and followed you. Jesus replies, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or child for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Sacrificial living and sacrificial giving is the mark of authentic Christianity. It is noticed and it's rewarded. Elsewhere, Jesus is even clearer. Lay up for yourselves. Not 401k, but treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Willing to go, but longing to stay. Longing to go, willing to stay. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Here's the thing. The reward is out of all proportion to what we've done. One illustration. You know the parable of the ten miners or the ten talents? Ten talents was roughly ten harvest laborers for three months. That's what it was, the equivalent of. The reward is what? Ten cities. That's heavenly calibration for you. That's increase, eternal increase. Ten harvest laborers, three months, take ten cities. And then reward for perseverance. Joel was amazing, the way he died. 
No mother or father could have had a better son. And by the way, no son could have had a better mother. If I could die half as well as he died, I would consider myself a true man. Half. And last words matter. They really, really matter. I thought very carefully about my last words to my boy. And when the moment came, the very last words I spoke over my son were these. Joel David... You have fought the good fight. You've finished the race. You've kept the faith. There's a crown waiting for you. Go get it. As I uttered those last words, he took his last breath and was gone from us, welcomed into heaven. Joel had been courageous, utterly selfless in those final brutal weeks. The trauma of the treatment still has us four years later reeling. He handled it with selfless courage, an outstanding example, persevering right to the end, less than 24 hours earlier, probably one-third of his body weight only two or three months before. He summoned enough strength to prophesy over his co-laborers at the church And I instinctively turned to his heavenly reward as a dad, as my parting gift of words. And he knew it was his signal to weigh anchor and depart. Paul's scripture calls the crown a crown of righteousness. And James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great where in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And it resonates with us, doesn't it, when a 15-year-old schoolgirl is shamefully persecuted by friends and teachers alike because she dares to say she believes in heterosexual marriage. When an airline worker is sacked for wearing a cross or where a health worker is sacked for offering to pray for a patient, doesn't it help at least a little bit to know that he cares, really cares, and cares enough to give us a reward that has eternal increase linked to it? Crowns typically, by the way, depict some state of honor or blessing for those who wear them. And blessing in Scripture often carries the dual connotation of favor and pleasure of God. And on a practical level, more of what you've got that's good. More of what you've got that's good. At the same time, they open up the doorway to more responsibility and more service for the king of heaven. Great is your reward. Reward on earth, 40 years, everybody's loved it. It's a shadow. It's a misty reflection 
of what the reality looks like in heaven, more of what you have, more of what you love to do, more of what he's made you good at, more increase, more fruitful, purposeful function. So heaven then is a place of so much more. Imagine the next, or rather the last breath here, the next breath somewhere else, alive, fully alive in paradise, and then imagine with wide-eyed, jaw-dropping wonder the possibility of service or work for God that fulfills your God-given talents and your Holy Spirit-imparted gifts. Imagine you or your loved ones who've gone before, waking up from suffering in a place of purposeful function with landscapes more beautiful than you can even imagine. Imagine arriving home after a long time away, a place designed and prepared personally for you by Jesus, remodeled by Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. A place with no suffering, no separation, no sorrow, no sin, no lies, no deceit. But there's so much more. And in the book, including a whole chapter on grief, we get to unpack this and so much more. But first and foremost, let me summarize before uh, Jill starts to land the plane this evening. First and foremost, heaven is God's home. It's God's address. Heaven has two locations, the final destination, new heaven and new earth, and the current stopover, paradise. The throne is first front and center. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Heaven is the substance. Earth is the shadow. Heaven is a place of everlasting, eternal increase. Present heaven, paradise is better by far, better than the best we've ever seen, ever known, or could ever imagine. And the beauty of the garden-like environment is better too than anything we've ever seen or could ever see on earth. There is learning in heaven. There is work, action, function in heaven. Every one of us with a tailor-made, purposeful, meaningful, fulfilling role to play. There is reward in heaven. We recognize and are recognized in heaven. We get to meet millions of saints and Bible heroes in heaven. There are reunions in heaven. There is wine, food, and celebrations in heaven. I'm hoping off the record there's champagne as well. Eye has not seen nor ear heard half of what God has prepared for those who love him. A place, ladies and gentlemen, where wide-eyed with jaws dropping, we discover that all those around and the place itself are full of iridescent light. Little wonder then that I'm always going home inside. Little wonder then that Paul would say, I long to be or depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, a place where we are welcomed by Jesus, a place where he is permanently present. Heaven makes sense of it all. Two poems. The first one is one that Joel wrote. Just bear in mind he was high on morphine, so it's not highly eloquent in the same way, but... This is what he wrote. They don't control things, he does. They can cut, inject, test, playing with his masterpiece, appearing to, ch to change shape and form, but it's already his plans and his purpose. <clears throat> they book scans, x-rays and clinics, yet he is in control. They struggle in the now, and yet he is past, 
present and future. He is totally in control. He has already ordained it. Nothing has changed. He is still in control. So that was Joel's poem. I've got one more poem to read. Don't know who wrote it, but um, I didn't. Um, it's a bit of a tearjerker, so you might need your Kleenex, I'll warn you. I will lend you for a little time, a child of mine, he said, for you to love for why he lives, while he lives, and mourn for when he's dead. He may be six or seven years or 22 or three, but will you, till I call him back, take care of him for me? He'll bring his charms to gladden you, and should he stay, be brief, you'll have happy memories as solace for your grief. I cannot promise he will stay, since all from earth return, but there are lessons taught down here that I want this child to learn. From the throngs that crowd life's lanes, I've selected you. Now will you give him all your love, nor think his the labor vain, nor hate me when I come to take him home again? I fancied I heard them say, dear Lord, thy will be done, for all the joys this child shall bring, the risk of grief we will run. We'll shelter him with tenderness, and we'll love him while we may, and for all the happiness we've known, forever grateful stay. But should the angels call for him much sooner than we've planned, we'll brave the bitter grief that comes and try to understand. We miss Joel. We miss his laughter, his generosity, his selfless care of us and others. We miss his love. We miss his irritating pranks. I miss his daily phone calls and his daily emails and more than I can ever tell you in words. I miss the touch of his hand and the sound of his voice. And like Tennyson, we too know what it is to cry, oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. But heaven has given our broken hearts a heartwarming hope. As Tennyson concludes, then eyes with joy will sparkle that brimmed with tears of late orphans no longer fatherless, nor widows desolate. There will be knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more. Joel and all those who have gone before have been welcomed home, a place more beautiful than anything imaginable on earth, reunited with friends and family. Joel and others related to you and missed me this evening have already met Bible characters they and we have loved from the book. They've begun to relate with the countless millions who've gone before from every tribe and tongue and nation, wondered with awe at the throne, first front and center, thrilled with the unfolding, unstoppable increase pouring out of heaven and skipped with joy as they take their new place of service. 
20th of December, 1257. After my final words over Joel and his last breath left him, these words were said. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good night, Joel. We'll see you in the morning. Now, folks, we're about to wind up, but I want to say these things because now it's your moment. It's the time for the King of Heaven to touch you as He wills and as you might want. I'm so aware, we are so aware, that, and we deeply care about it, by the way, that you come to an evening like this, each of you with different reasons. Some have come because you love us and you wanted to be supportive. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. There will be others who came interested or intrigued to know if the Bible does check out and say anything about heaven. Others will have come apprehensive about what present heaven is like, maybe living a bit concerned or fearful about boredom, disillusionment or apprehension. Others have come tonight because in your hearts you know you don't long to go and something in you knows that's just not right. And it's possible, probably likely, that many of you have come tonight because you've someone in your world who's died. Very common in these evenings for there to be one or two families who've been through suicide never been able to talk about it. Very common for doors of grief to suddenly be unlocked. And maybe you've come hoping for reassurance. You might have come carrying at surface level, the deep shards of grief, walking through what Psalm 23 actually calls, not the valley of the shadow, the Hebrew is actually the valley of deepest darkness. The emptiness, the isolation, the lonely, pain-filled days and nights that are so hard to bear. And it's possible you don't even know why you came except you wanted to hear somebody talk about it. Others have family or friends, terminally ill, you've come on their behalf to try and find a way to support and help. Some, maybe one or two in the room, you've come because you're on a journey to faith, you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus yet, and you've come hoping to understand things a little bit better, and maybe heaven makes a bit of sense to you tonight. Whoever you are, whatever's important to you, whatever you came, we're going to ask the King of Heaven in just a moment to touch each one of you individually in your heart in a way that responds to the heart level reason why you came tonight. Jesus said these words, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Paul said, I say again, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Going home, always going home inside. The psalmist sang, your loving kindness is better than life and reminded us that precious in the sight of God is the death of his chosen ones. And in the first book of the Bible, Job, it says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And lastly, from the lips of the carpenter, trustworthy, utterly reliable words, a promise. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
I wonder if you can and you'd like to, please don't feel any pressure, would you just like to stand? And this will not be long. I'm just simply going to ask the King of Heaven to illuminate, to grant insight, to bring comfort, to bring peace, to bring clarity, whatever it is that in your heart you need. Let's just ask him together. Heavenly Father, King of Heaven, Father in Heaven, Lord of Heaven, Possessor of Heaven, Lord of Heaven and Earth, we worship you tonight. We thank you that Jesus has promised to go and prepare a place for us. And I pray tonight that out of the words of Scripture that have been read, some of them repeated several times. Would you open hearts? Would you open minds? Would you bring insight? Would you cause the light to go on? Would you cause peace to come? Would you cause deep comfort, wrap around love and comfort for those who right now are grieving and can barely contain the pain of it? For those that have been unable to talk about their grief, some in this room for decades, would you open the doors so that they can talk and they can receive the healing power of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. 